Hello and welcome to the next edition of Lights on Europe. Today we talk to my Belgian colleague Franz Nays, who has been around for a very long time to remember what has been the impact of the European integration on the city of Brussels and Belgian society, who also has strong opinions on how us expats are integrated into Belgium and, and Brussels. He's been introducing very innovative participatory methods into European institutions, so you may be also interested to hear his opinion on the future of public sector the carriers. And last but not least, here's some advice on the power of journaling practice in your daily life. So I welcome here Franz Nays, who's a very dear colleague of mine that I got to know not so much through the work context. Uh, Franz, you're a phenomenon here in the commission, but mainly through the activities that you do to reform the culture of the institutions and the way we work and collaborate together. So tell us a little bit more, what do you, what, what is it that your heart is really beating for? What's your passion when we talk about transformation of the collaboration culture in the commission? Well, before joining the Commission, I uh, worked a number of years in the telecom industry. And uh, there, um, the major concept uh, for working and cooperating uh, was customer service. And I've been trying to introduce this concept uh, into the uh, work atmosphere since a number of years. And um, my job is the follow-up of unpaid invoices. So I'm working as a bureau d'encaissement, as they say in French, and uh, so I chase people for money. And I've been doing that for 18 years. So as your job, whenever the commission receives an invoice from its partners, I guess you are chasing uh, the... No, it's us that establishes the invoices. And when they are not paid on time, I go and chase the Ah, so you're hunting the money for the commission. Okay, very good. And then outside of this job, you are uh, an evangelist, I have to say, of what we call here participatory leadership and art of hosting. Yes. What is it? Well, um... There is something in the institutions that is called the Assistant Network. In 2011, I was president of the network commission-wide and I was invited by DG Communication to present the network to the secretaries of the delegations. And there I encountered uh, a lady called Catherine Durkop who um, introduced me to um, participatory leadership and she advised me to follow the training. I asked my manager if I was allowed to do that and so I followed the three-day training which was the best thing that ever happened to me in the commission and there uh, I soon became one of the more active practitioners and what it does participatory leadership is instead of one person leading a meeting standing behind the cathedral and the others trying not to fall asleep you bring people together to have meaningful conversations So you organize the people in small groups, you point them to the fact that everybody uh, has her or his say and that all opinions are um, respected. And in the end, uh, we uh, gather the results and uh, we invite people to take ownership of the ideas they bring. And uh, what you get is that people are much more motivated in the circumstances of participatory leadership which is worldwide known as the art of hosting. And it's a very grateful thing to do. 
and a very interesting thing to do and you make many friends because you get to meet colleagues from all across the institutions right because one of the most important elements of it from my experience because i've also been through the training is that whenever you want to host a meeting be it with the colleagues or with your experts with member states or whoever are the partners that we used to have conversation with for our policies you need other people to host the meeting with you because yes. the bigger the group the more hosts you need to keep the conversations engaged and to really extract the maximum wisdom of each and every individual who in a typically big meeting would prefer staying comfortable and not speaking up maybe or not really sharing the experience that they have from other contexts so that's why i also agree that that's one of the biggest added values for us that you get to learn a lot more about what's happening in the other parts of the house What are the examples of where you saw these more participatory methods applied and the effects on maybe like little concrete projects or reform initiatives or policy areas? Well, I could give you the example of my job where I uh, applied it because uh, being an expert in uh, the follow-up of what we call recovery orders, which means in business language what? Uh, the follow-up of invoices, okay. unpaid invoices. So I also give training on all the financial agents that deal with recovery orders, and there are plenty in the Commission. So together with my colleague uh, uh, Jorge, um, I give training on this subject, and we have developed our training, which is a full-day uh, uh, course, so that people don't get the feeling of being lectured. So we invite them to speak up because most of the time the people who come to our training already have experience with recovery orders. So we start the morning by putting on music to welcome people, which is quite unusual, they find. And In the administrative context? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and so it's a very fine instrument to make people feel welcome. And then, uh, instead of uh, immediately starting our course, we ask people, who are you, uh, where do you come from, and what is your experience with uh, the field that we talk about today? And people, they, uh, they get really involved in, into the matter. And during the current of uh, the day, we ask, uh, say to people, ask questions, And we also, so this is all in the frame of director general budget. And uh, the same... Which is the part of the commission which manages the budget of, finance, the entire, yes. of the entire institution. And there is also within a budget um, a working group called the Financial Units Network, a fund network. And um, they come together uh, every month on a certain topic where they uh, bring together people also in participatory leadership fashion to discuss certain practices. Also, a very good way uh, to get people together to get to know each other. Typically in an administration, which is which tends to be more risk-averse than maybe a private business context. Also, the managers tend to be very risk-averse and not too open to innovative uh, ways of hosting meetings. So when you combine the culture with 
a very rigid and rules-based area like finances are and there's reasons why they re- why there's procedures and very strict rules how do you square the two how do you uh, onboard the management which might be reluctant to introduce this kind of methodologies to meetings where the number one priority is not for people to have fun in meetings and not to fall asleep. The number one priority is really to teach them and to make sure that the rules are followed when we manage the resources, right? The last months, uh, I noticed that uh, management also in DG Budget is opening up for these practices because you come to uh, collective intelligence and that is what they are aiming at. So instead of um, one person taking a decision on, for example, the renewal of the accounting systems, you invite people to give their opinion so that you come to a collective effort and a collective result. And this is also an example of what we call here servant leadership, right? How us as members of the team, really, of thousands of people who work in the institutions, how each of us can turn into a leader in the area that we operate and serve the broader context that we are working in and serve the teams that we have impact on. What is your understanding of servant leadership? Well, you don't have to be a manager to be a, a servant leader. Uh, you can be this. You can play this role on a very low level in in the hierarchy. Um, for example, by supporting colleagues, inviting them to have uh, conversations. Yeah, and and being the example. Leading by example. Yes. Yes. position in the institutions or in our team generally is unique in the sense that you are Belgian among a house which is full of expats. So how, speaking on behalf of the Belgians now, not a European official, how the Belgian people feel or Brussels people, how do they feel about us invading their city really? How do you see our integration into the city? The Belgians have a tendency to uh, look at the European civil servants as uh, being an elite group. and As elite, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, so there is... Um, a little bit of a suspicion because they um, are a strong, uh, a strong presence on the housing market, for example. And there is also a little contact between the locals and the experts. I remember a conference uh, that I attended uh, where um, the philosopher Philippe van Parijs invited both um, people from Belgium and uh, European civil servants to talk about the connection between these. And uh, I remember the testimony of a German lady who said that she sent her children to a Belgian school, not a European school, which was the best guarantee to come in contact with locals. So that was a, a good idea. So it may, we may consider asking people to abandon the idea of the European schools so that uh, the integration uh, goes more smoothly. So for those who don't know the concept of European schools, those are the schools which are only open to the, the employees, really, of the European institutions for the kids to have access to their education in the national language yeah. of the country that they come mm-hmm. from 
especially for those who are like temporarily posted here or who have shorter contracts with the probability that their kids will go home and continue their education at home. So yep. that's what I understood as the original intention behind the setup of the schools. Yep. But I've also, I also have myself have many friends who have been here for many years and who have decided that they want to spend the rest of their lives in, in Brussels, really following their career. And so they typically often also take the decision to put their schools to, to the, their kids to Belgian schools so that they are better integrated. They learn the language, they get to hang out with the locals and really get the feel for whatever is local, the culture, politics, etc. But I'm not sure in the college would agree with the idea of completely really revamping the education model. I can imagine that someone from Lithuania, for example, prefers uh, uh, her or his kids uh, to grow uh, to go to school in, in Lithuanian language. Yes. yes, absolutely. And so what else do you find is the challenge for, for Brussels as the capital of Europe to manage this interaction between typical Belgian identity of Brussels and as the capital of this country and the interaction with the European institutions or many other international organizations which are here and a who bring in hundreds of thousands of expats. A very good example on how the European civil servant have influenced the politics in Brussels is the mobility issue. People from Scandinavia, from the Netherlands, from Germany, uh, 30-40 years ago they brought their bicycles and uh, found out that it is practically impossible to cycle in Brussels. In the meantime, um, so 20-25 years ago, a group gathered and decided to form the European Union Cycling Group. And in the beginning, um, there were very few participants. But what the group does is not organizing cycle uh, events, but to lobby towards the local and the national authorities to improve cycling conditions and the quality of the air, which is a delicate issue in Brussels. In the meantime, the association has 3,000 members and together with uh, the local cycling groups like Fietsersbond and Grak, they... Which is something in Dutch? Uh, yeah, the Cycling League, Fietsersbond in Dutch and Grak. It's an abbreviation, but I don't know what it stands for. And so they have managed to influence uh, politics so that nowadays, and I saw it very clearly this morning, the cycling uh, conditions have improved significantly in recent years. Also, the number of cyclically, uh, cyclists has doubled uh, in the last uh, five years. So that's, that's an important example. Is this something that you also reflect on more broadly? Because you're also a philosopher and writer. Yeah. Uh, so when you write, do you write about the local issues like this in the spirit of your policy making identity? Or what do you write about? Is it more of uh, well, fantasy I keep, books? No, I keep a diary since 1973. And then you publish the diary? No. Uh, so it's your writing yeah, for yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can happen that uh, parts of my diary I transform into letters that I send to my family or my friends. What yeah. is your longer term dream? What is supposed to happen to the diary one day? Do you dream of having it published or would you want to or you never want to see it published? The question is why should anyone publish anything if you have so many social media where you can uh, spread your writings. So publishing would be nice, yes, but uh, my 
uh, problem is I write in Dutch, and uh, which is not uh, a language that so many people talk uh, about, uh, let's say, 25 million. Well, I come from a 5 million country, so it's big <laughs> enough market for me. Yeah, okay. What do you think is the power of this kind of journaling practice? It is getting very popular on the wave of the whole mindfulness movement now. And it's getting just like meditation and yoga has become very cool in the past years. Journaling is also part of these practices that are recommended by all the personal development gurus as one of the personal development practices to get greater clarity of thoughts. Is it the same thing for you? Is it one of the reasons why you continue or it's really just because you like writing and you happen to be writing about yourself? Both. Yeah, it is um, a means of self-reflection. It is also a logbook. I had an example the other day uh, where I, I said to myself, okay, this is a situation that I have been through uh, uh, on a previous occasion, but when was that? And then I simply dive into my diary and I find uh, everything. So. so you've been doing this since what, 1973? So you so have like a full cupboard of yeah. your books. No, uh, up to 97, I wrote, uh, I did by handwriting. Yeah. But everything I've written before 97, uh, I uh, transformed it into one word document. So ah, I have now all it's my all life. Digital. In, yeah. You've also spent some parts of your life abroad, you mentioned to me many, many years ago, like on your military service, and you have all this wisdom that you've been collecting about other countries and other nationalities. What are your thoughts on Slovakia and Czechoslovakia? What pops to your mind when I say that I was born in Czechoslovakia? Well, um, I was in Prague in the spring of 2000. Uh, that was before I was at the commission. I worked at uh, Cisco Systems in the telecom industry. And so you lived in Prague for no, 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 you were I visiting. visited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a conference in Prague. Mm-hmm. And um, with uh, three colleagues, I decided to, to stay one day longer to visit the city and to have uh, dinner, evening dinner in uh, a restaurant called Pravda. Pravda, yes. <laughs> yes. Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very nice experience. Um, but w- if I know something about Slovakia or, or Czechoslovakia, it is because I'm a dedicated reader. And uh, so I have read uh, Ivan Klima, for example. But uh, what I like very much, I'm very fond of Bohumil Rabal. Rabal, yes. Yes. Why? What is the piece of writing or do you have a quote in mind or something that you yes, like about uh, his... Yes, no, I remember very well, I served the, the King of England, but there is also, the, some of his uh, stories and books have been uh, filmed. Yes, I mean, the, the thing is that most of the people who haven't had special personal links to the country, they don't have any particular links. That's why I enjoy asking this question, because it's either an intense experience with the region that somebody had through, you know, their Erasmus experience or holidays in a spa and mountains or through their ex-girlfriends and partners or zero, really, because typically they would just go on holiday somewhere else. 
Um, so you you're special do... because it's really through an intellectual experience that yes. you have an image yes. of yes, the yes. region. And uh, what is intriguing also, uh, that is, um, Franz Kafka was from Prague. And um, I'm quite fond of Kafka, even though he writes in German. But the charm of Kafka is um, the German philosopher Hannah Arendt, in one of her essays about Kafka, uh, compares his writing to other German writers as water to other drinks, which is, I think, a very nice compliment for someone from Prague. Do you have a Belgian writer that you would like to recommend to our readers? Who's your favorite writer? Uh, well, the most famous is probably also the best. His name is Hugo Klaus. Um, there are um, uh, writers uh, quite famous that write in French, like uh, Amélie Nothomb. And well, um, I can go on for hours because hours. But we would, yeah, we would need to Dutch open authors. a literature review yeah. here. Uh, the most and fascinating book I read in Dutch uh, was written by uh, a poet and philosopher called Patricia de Martelare. Uh, the title of her uh, nicest uh, book is The Unexpected Answer. And I know her, uh, I've known her personally because she was one of my professors in philosophy. Okay. And uh, she has had my age, but unfortunately she died uh, eight years ago. You're really like a walking memoir, you remember so much. When it comes to European history, really the history of the European integration, I guess you're one of the few people who are not only senior enough to have experienced this, but you've like physically felt it because you've seen the impact on Belgium, on your country, and you've also seen the impact on the European institutions of the enlargements of the new member states coming in, uh, the new policies being open, the new cultures being brought into Brussels and mingling with the Belgians. So I find that a bit of a unique experience that you have. How do you perceive it? What was the golden era of European integration for you? Um, we have a colleague in, I think she's from the council, uh, Victoria Martin de la Torre, who wrote a book about it, uh, about the founding fathers of uh, Europe. And it's quite an emotional book because uh, she starts with a conference in The Hague in 1950. And she describes how two Spanish journalists drive along the Besuidenhoutseweg towards the along car. Along what? It's a road in The Hague. Okay. Uh, and I found it very special because um, my wife's grandmother used to live there. And, um, but the book beautifully uh, describes uh, why uh, Europe has, uh, the institutions have come to existence and what the motivation was of the founding. You have to consider that um, we were just after the Second World War and something needed to be done to avoid uh, other wars. And um, that still is uh, the strongest element that uh, is behind the European ID. But there are other IDs that uh, can be promoted where Europe can play the role of uh, a leading entity one of the examples is uh, climate change. So uh, Europe needs needs to be an example there and play an important role. And so where do you see this going in the future? Do you have hope that you will manage to fulfill this role? Or 
is there a change needed at certain levels of what we do, how we do it, who are the leaders in order to be able to really embrace this role and be successful? Yes, something needs to change. And it is uh, not only something you hope for, it's a simple necessity. And what is it? What is it that we remember, need to do concretely uh, in these situations? I remember a conference uh, five years ago uh, where a Dutch author, um, well known for children's books, but he is also a politician, uh, a liberal, who uh, was interviewed. The man at that moment was already 90 years old. And it was a session in the Flemish parliament. And the interviewer asked Jan Terlouw, the writer, what was uh, the biggest project of the 20th century? And he said, well, uh, to gain and to keep peace. And then the interviewer asked, and what is the most important project for the 21st century? And Terlouw, being 90 years old, he immediately replied, save the earth. Absolutely. And since you're still here, I, I expect that you hope that the European institutions can play some role in this. Would you recommend your kids to find it, look for a job in the European institutions? Do you think the public administration career at the European level is equally exciting compared to the era when you were beginning? Or what would you say the young generation, because the public administration careers are typically not the coolest jobs or the, the perception of the jobs is not like the coolest ones out there. So what is your message to the youth? Well, I worked in the private sector for 20, more than 20 years before joining the institutions. And I have three children. Um, the oldest is uh, working for an architect uh, company uh, as specialized in heritage because the architect company uh, is specialist in renovations. They renovated, for example, the Atomium in Brussels. One and, of the tourist yeah. landmarks in and Brussels. And my son finishes uh, his studies in company management uh, and he starts working now in September at Deloitte, so he will not be a civil servant. And my youngest daughter finishes her studies in film and uh, she hopes to be a um, production assistant or production manager even. So my children, uh, they do not aim a job in the European institutions, but I know that the fact that they have chosen for uh, a certain direction is because the authorities and um, politicians have created uh, an education system where it is possible for people to do uh, to evolve towards their dream job and uh, that i think is also something that uh, has evolved through let's call it uh, the the influence of the european institutions of course i guess all of us are really enjoying the benefits of the eu on the daily basis and now the question is if we would like to make the public service more sexy for the young generation if we can really lead by example by showing what is it that we do and attract them through really shedding light on what we do here. That's why I also keep on asking people what do they think is the coolest part about their job really? Or is the answer changing the administration? Otherwise the talented people out there would never go and work for the administration. One very strong element uh, in that realm is uh, the international atmosphere. So uh, when you enter into the European institutions, you meet people from all over Europe, 
from various countries, uh, various cultures, various uh, languages. And um, as I uh, host also the welcome session for the newcomers, I know very well who are these newcomers. And um, recently uh, we had even people from uh, Norway <laughs> that uh, started working in the institutions. Uh, Which as is possible thanks to the bilateral agreement between yes. the EU and Norway. Yes, I met uh, one Brazilian and a Japanese also. Um, and of course, there are people from the um, candidate uh, countries like uh, Serbia, Albania. Uh, and so Turkey. what do you tell them? What is the best part about your job? The international atmosphere. The possibility to work with yes. people from all around the world on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Beautiful, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye.